for Jesus, for what Jesus has done for us, promised to us. We thank you that you are at work here among us as we gather to proclaim the name of Jesus. Be glorified in our worship. Let our hearts be open to you. Let your Holy Spirit do in us and for us what we desperately need. And we pray this through your grace and in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's great to see you as we gather for worship today. Take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here today in worship. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone you don't know. So just a couple of things I want to mention to you this morning. Uh, there are sheets in the uh, pew rack in front of you. Uh, if you have, I'd like to communicate with the staff. If there's things about uh, ministries or things in the church that you'd like to know more about or connect with, have questions about, things you want to pray about that you'd like for us to, to remember in prayer, you know, feel free to use those sheets. You can drop it in the offering plate or if it comes before you're ready, you can just leave it in the pew and we'll pick them up after the service. Uh, also, um, just wanted to uh, make you aware, today is the last day to sign up for working in the nursery this year. Uh, there are some sheets on the back table. If you're interested in that, you've not yet signed up, just grab one of those as you head out. And um, we will uh, get those for you and the schedule will be made up in the next couple of days. Uh, also, following this service in Kaleidoscope Sunday School class, which meets in the community room behind us. Uh, if you're not connected to a class already, the group that went to Puerto Rico uh, this summer is going to be sharing uh, there uh, during the next hour, and you're invited to be a part of that event. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Yeah. 
Sometimes the, the posture in which we pray is a way of expressing the, the desires and the, the burdens and the prayers of our hearts. Sometimes standing is the, is the best expression, sometimes sitting, sometimes kneeling. This morning as we pray together, if you'd like to come and kneel at the altar, I invite you to join me. If you want to stand where you are, you're welcome to do that and remain seated as we engage ourselves in prayer to our mighty God today. Father, we thank you that we are your children, that you love us, you care for us, you're at work in our lives, and we come today and bow before you in honor and adoration, in thanksgiving, in praise, and in worship, giving thanks for who you are and all that you do. As we gather today, Father, we come recognizing how much we need you. As we gather today, there are burdens and concerns on each of our hearts and minds. We pray for all who are grieving today and ask for your comforting presence to each person. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We think especially of Phil Maine and Dan Gurley, Lawrence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Gus and Louise Princell, Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Doris Esepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Beverett, Emily Cricklar, others. Lord, we ask for your healing grace upon each one. Father, we come today with other kinds of burdens. Some of us come with financial burdens, and we ask that you would meet the needs of our lives. We come with relational burdens and ask that you would repair and restore what is fractured and broken. We come admitting our our struggle with sin and self-centeredness. And we ask that you would heal us, forgive us, and set us free from the sins that so easily entangle us. For some, we come worried about the future. Give us peace. Guide us and lead us in your Holy Spirit. Father, we think of of not only the needs before us, but the needs all around us. We thank you for the ministry of churches around us. And today we pray for the United Church of Friendship and Pastor Kirsch. May your grace be upon this congregation of believers. May they sense your spirit leading them, guiding them, helping them. May they be your people, your witness in friendship and beyond. And Father, we think of, of the needs, other needs around us as well. We, we thank you that we have the privilege of, of caring for one another in our town and in the communities around us. We pray for this Amish family that has recently suffered from the accident and hospitalization and needs and We pray, Father, that you will bring healing to them, that you will help them with the financial burden that this may have caused. And may they know the the support of your people 
in this difficult time. We think of your church around the world, and particularly we pray for the church in Iran, a very difficult place. We think of these four pastors who've recently been sentenced to many years in prison simply because they gather people to worship you. We pray, Father, that you would bring an end to this opposition, that you would give them courage and faith in the midst of the opposition, and that you would be glorified in all that they do. We pray, Father, for the needs of our world that are so great, places of disasters and tragedies and war, refugees, so many burdens and concerns. Let your Holy Spirit and let your people be a presence for healing and hope in the midst of great despair. Father, we pray for, for the divisiveness in our nation and in our world. We find ourselves so often being drawn into a mindset in which we see others as either for us or against us. And all the while, you are calling us to see one another as neighbors. Neighbors to love and to forgive. and Neighbors to welcome and to value. Neighbors who are loved by you every bit as much as we believe we are loved by you. We pray that you will help your church to exhibit a mindset, an attitude, and to live out actions that are revolutionary. Actions and attitudes that look like Jesus. Father, teach us your ways. Open our hearts to your spirit. Continue to shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in his name, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading for today is found in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. In keeping with the traditions of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospels. Hear the word of the Lord. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. 
So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Children may now be dismissed for Children's Church.
How many of you would consider yourself a competitive game player? Oh, come on. You know, I know you're not telling me the truth. Oh, there's one up there jumping up and down saying they're competitive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, we have various levels of what it means to be a competitive game player. But um, if you get into a room of, of friends, at least you start out the night as friends, and you, uh, you, you start playing games, you know, you can tell the people who are taking it seriously and the people who are not. And what I find is the people who don't take it seriously irritate the people who do as much as losing the games when you're doing it, right? I mean, you've been there. So I was reading recently about a woman who was with a group of friends. They were playing Pictionary. You know, that, that game, it's a little bit of an older game, but you get a card and you draw, try to draw something on a piece of paper. Then the people try to, your team tries to guess what you're drawing. Um, and so they're playing Pictionary and she looks, she picks up a card, she looks at it. And the word on her card that she's supposed to draw is the word difficult. Now you think about that for a second. Draw the word difficult. You know, normally you're drawing, you know, the part on the card is tomato or chihuahua or church or something, you know. But difficult. And she said, I'm a really good purse player at this game. And for 60 seconds, I sat there staring at that card completely blank about anything I could draw. I, I had no clue, nothing. And she said, when the timer went off and my team was looking at me like, what is wrong with you? You couldn't draw anything? She said, said, I said to them, how ironic that it's so difficult to draw the word difficult. And then she said, I looked at the card again and realized that the card I had drawn was not one of the cards you used to to draw pictures, but it was one of the instruction cards. Differentiating clues that are easy and difficult. Just threw it up so that I'm done with this. When I read that, the first thing that came to my mind was, I think that's how prayer feels to us sometimes. You know, we look at it, we think, I'm getting pretty good at this. I figured some things out. I, I think I'm starting to understand some dynamics of it. And then all of a sudden, something new comes to us and we think, I don't know anything. We keep thinking we get prayer in a box, we figured it out, and the next thing we know it's jumping out of the box. Every time it feels like we are, we are figuring it out, we realize how little we truly no. And I think what it causes us to do is to, for some, in some cases, it causes us to give up. Why should I mess with it anymore? I don't understand what's happening here. I hear that from people all the time as people may come to me and say, can you talk to me about prayer? I don't understand prayer. I'm struggling with prayer. And, and we, we wrestle with it because it doesn't seem to make sense sometimes. It doesn't seem to be accomplishing what we want it to accomplish sometimes. It doesn't feel what we think it's supposed to feel sometimes. And often in our frustration, we step back and say, I don't know what to do with this. It's one of the reasons why I'm convinced we... We, we, and I think we never quite get to the end of it, which is frustrating. Because we want to say, I figured it out and we're done. But because we, ha- we never quite get to the end of it, because there's always something more, it's important that we think about it. 
And that's why over the course of these next couple of months, we're going to be talking Sunday about prayer. And we're not going to get to the end of it and you're not going to be able to say, okay, I figured it all out. But rather, it's like a diamond and has, has hundreds of facets to it. And we're going to look at a few of those facets. And hopefully, when we get to the end of it, we can say, prayer is, is, is deeper to me than it was. I'm, and even more than that, that I'm more engaged in praying than I might have been before. And ultimately, when we get to the end of October and into November, we're going to again engage in a three-week, 24-7 prayer vigil. And we'll talk more about that as the weeks progress. But we are not the only people in history who struggle with prayer. It's fascinating to me that when you look at this passage in Luke, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the only thing the disciples ask Jesus to teach them that we have recorded in Scripture. You would think that we would have recorded, Lord, teach us to preach, teach us to heal, teach us to to know how to talk to the religious leaders. But the only thing Scripture records that the disciples ask Jesus to teach them is to pray. I think that's significant. Now, what the reason they asked Jesus to teach them to pray, Luke says, is as he says in verse 1, he says, Once when Jesus was in a certain place praying, and when he finished, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. The reason they want Jesus to teach them to pray is because they've watched Jesus praying. Again and again and again, prayer is vital to the life of Jesus. And if prayer is, life, is vital to the Son of God, then it's probably something that ought to be vital to us. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. Now, on the one hand, it's exciting to think we could learn how to pray. On the other hand, there's something in us that says, can you really learn to pray? Isn't prayer something you just do? Isn't prayer something that that it just comes out of you? You just start talking to God. It's a part of just communicating with God. And yes, that is a part of praying. But when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, he doesn't say, oh no, you can never learn to pray. He starts teaching them. And the reality is, prayer is a learned discipline. Just like studying scripture is a learned discipline. How to worship is a learned discipline. Are there spontaneous moments to it? Of course there are. But it is a learned discipline. And anything that has value to us is something we give time and energy to learn how to be better doing it. So if you want to, if you want to, to, to learn how to make the best cheesecake possible, then you go online and you look up recipes and you watch videos and you practice and you do the very best you can to try to make the very best cheesecake possible. If you want to know how to build the best shelf, bookshelf for your, your child's room or for your, the room, your room, then you go online. If you don't know how to do that, you go online and you watch videos and you talk to people and you learn how to do it. And why do we go through all the trouble of that? Because getting to the end is important to us. And sometimes I think that there is something in the back of our minds that says being a follower of Jesus and and praying particularly is something you just do. It's not something you invest yourself in learning how to do. 
And yet everything that is important to us, God created this world so that everything that's important to us is something we learn by investing our time and our energy and our effort into. And if we want to be people who learn how to pray, then we do everything we can to figure out how to learn how to pray. It's important. And perhaps one of the reasons we struggle with learning how to pray is because way back in the recesses of our minds and in our hearts, we're not really sure it's all that important. It's important in the moment when we are struggling with something. It's important in the moment when we are are feeling overwhelmed. But as a regular learned discipline, maybe not so much. But Jesus seems to assume that this is a really good question, that prayer is something you can learn how to do, and so he answers their question. And his answer to their question is to say, they ask him, teach us to pray, and he says, here's what you pray. We prayed it, a version of it, a few moments ago. He says, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. This is a little bit shorter version of the, what we call the Lord's Prayer than Matthew 6 has. We're going to look at that one next week. But the gist of this is, Jesus says, here is a model for how to pray. There's nothing magical about this particular prayer. But there is something powerful in what Jesus prays. Jesus begins by talking about uh, who God is, that God is holy, that God is almighty, that God is unlike any other God. And then he says, Lord, we want your kingdom to be what happens on earth. We want this world to be about your kingdom, the way you do things. In his book, Living the Sermon on the Mount, Glenn Stassen lists these things about the Lord's Prayer. That it begins by acknowledging who God is. It acknowledges that his way is best and therefore that's what we desire. We acknowledge that all we have is from God. And all we're ever going to get is from God. We acknowledge that his forgiveness prompts our forgiveness. We acknowledge that victory is possible in his help and his strength. And as you can see, as this prayer is broken down, it begins, you can see that it takes on all the dynamics and the elements of our lives. It's a prayer of worship and praise. It's a prayer of of wanting what God wants. It's a prayer of asking for God's help and grace. And so Jesus says, here's what you pray. When you pray... Pray about all of these things. Pray about the small things like your daily bread. Pray about the the things that we may see as larger, falling into temptation. Pray about who God is, about God's kingdom. Pray about all of it. That's what prayer does. And I suspect at that moment the disciples, if they had pens and paper and were writing these things down, said, this is great. That's exactly what we wanted. Now we have a formula. Now we have something like John's disciples have. We've got a formula we can use. So now every time we think about praying, we'll sit down and we'll pray this prayer. We've got it. And they're probably ready to get up and walk on to the next thing. And Jesus says, no, wait a second. I'm not done yet. I'm not finished. The New Living Translation begins verse 5 and says, Then teaching them more about prayer, he used the story. And Jesus tells them a story. It's a story about a, a, a man 
who, whose friend comes to him late at night and he's been on a long journey and he has nothing to eat. He's hungry. There are no restaurants along the road in first century Palestine. And so he gets there and, and, he, and he says, I'm hungry. And the friend says, I don't have anything to eat. So he goes to his neighbor and you have this whole scenario of that. I think it's important in order to understand this parable, to understand the background of the, of the first century Palestine. In that culture, hospitality was essential. If somebody came to your house, to your village, and they had needs, it was shameful for you not to help them. It was disrespectful. It, it, re, it, was, it reflected poorly on the reputation of you as a person, of you as a family, of you as a village, to not help people who were in need. And so here's a guy who has a friend who comes to his house, and, and he has nothing to serve him. And that's embarrassing. I mean, you always have to have food around. You never know who's going to show up, and you need food. And he doesn't have any. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, what do I do? I should have food. I don't have any food. The only thing I know to do is either I have two choices. Either I can let my friend be hungry or I can humble myself and go next door and get some from my neighbor. It's humiliating to say to his neighbor, I should have food and I don't have any. I was trying to think this week about what that might look like for us. We don't have the same kind of shame-based culture that first century Palestine had about hospitality. I mean, we like helping people, but it's not quite the same thing. And I was thinking back to when I was in college, I worked at a sawmill and in the summers. And, and I loved working at the sawmill. It was fascinating, interesting to me to work there. Also, it made really good money. In the course of a summer, I could pay for my entire year's education. They paid really good money at this mill. And, and so, so I worked a mill. And I had the lowest level job in the mill. My job was to clean up the mill after the second shift was done. And so I worked all night. Go to work about 10, get off about 6.30 in the morning. Spend the night cleaning the mill and doing watchman work all around. Making sure nobody was trying to steal things or start fires. Because I was a very intimidating presence to anybody who might want to steal something. Yeah. There were no qualifications like that. It's just... Somebody walking around might scare them off. So I'm sure I was more scared than they were. But, but there were a lot of days where somebody might call in sick the first shift that started at 6 in the morning. And so the, the foreman would come to one of us who worked all night and said, Hey, you guys want to, want to work a double shift? Now, we worked from 10 to 6.30 in the morning, 6 in the morning already. But I always jumped at those opportunities, not only because you made a little more money, but also you got time and a half. So, I mean, you're making pretty good money doing that. The problem was, almost always you got put on what was called the green chain. This is a picture of a green chain. And the green chain was a long chain, maybe 75 yards long or so. Maybe, no, not quite that long. 75 feet long, not 75 yards. They'd be like a football field. Uh, 75 uh, feet long. And the boards would come down after being cut. And the guy would grade them. And they'd come down this long chain. And there were four, usually three or four guys on the chain. And we all were assigned areas. And we pulled these huge boards off of the chain onto these carts. And you had to stack them on the cart just right so that eventually it could be banded up. And then the forklift would come and take them away. And they always put me and the guys who didn't normally run the green chain at the worst possible place. The end of the chain with the largest, longest, heaviest boards. And so here I am. I worked all night already. And I'm doing, trying to pull this chain. And I'm sitting there. The first, I remember the first couple of times I did this, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. 
The boards are coming at me. And the other guys, they're, they're just whipping their boards off no time. And then they're talking and doing whatever. And I'm trying to, I'm, the boards are stacking up and piling up. And I'm trying to get them on the right carts. And I'm getting them on the wrong carts. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, I ought to be going to those guys and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. But I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what I was doing. But after about a half an hour, they looked down and they realized I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, they could see it, right? Because all the boards are piled up along the whole chain waiting for me. So they shut down the chain and those guys came down and helped me figure out what was going on. And looking at me like, you're an idiot, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. And I remember one of them said to me, why didn't you come ask us and tell us you didn't know what you were doing so we could help you? And I'm like, I didn't want to look stupid. And you know that feeling, right? You're sitting in class. You have no idea what the professor's talking about. But you don't want to look stupid and ask a question. You're you're sitting in a meeting and everyone's figured out what's going on. And you're sitting there thinking, I don't have a clue what's happening here. But you don't want to ask a question because you don't want to look stupid. It's humiliating to not know. And I think the guy in the story is wrestling with that, with this humiliation of I have to go to my neighbor and say, I should have bread, I should have food, and I don't. Can you help me? And when you get to verse 8, this is the key part of that story. Jesus says, if your friend won't get up and help you because you're his friend and his neighbor, he will get up and help you because of your shameless audacity. Now, that word has been translated a variety of ways through the years. It was often translated persistence or boldness. And those are inklings of it, but it really does mean shameless audacity. What it really means is you aren't afraid to humble yourself and ask for help. You're not afraid to say, I am needy, I can't do this, and I I need help. And however humiliating it may be and however bad we may think it makes us look, if you have a need, ask. And Jesus says, that's a whole lot of what prayer is about. It's not just what you pray, but it's how you pray. It's the spirit in which you pray. And you come in a spirit of humility before God. You come in a spirit of acknowledging that we are needy people, that we have tried our best. We've done everything we can. We can't do it. Or we realize right from the beginning, we can't do it. And we say, Lord, we need you. In all humility, shamelessly, we come to him and say, Lord, We need you. And isn't it ironic that Jesus says that that kind of humility is connected to confidence and boldness in praying? Because when you get to verse 9 and verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, come with this kind of shameless audacity. This is what praying is rooted in. And he says, so because of that, when you have that mindset, ask, seek, Knock. And in fact, the New Living Translation gives the the gist of the tense of the verbs used here. He says, so I tell you, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't be afraid. And it's it's the spirit of humility and transparency and vulnerability that should make us hesitant to ask. Jesus says that should embolden you to ask. Don't be afraid. 
Keep asking. It's good. Keep asking. And he says, when you ask, when you ask, you receive. When you seek, you find. When you knock, the door will be open to you. And often we've interpreted that as a magical formula. Right? If we ask, God's got to do it. If we knock, God's got to open it. If we seek, God's going to find it. What if, instead of that being about the results, what if instead Jesus is talking about a reason? What if instead of it being a formula for getting what we want, Jesus is simply saying, how will you ever find if you don't seek? How will you ever receive if you don't ask? Why would the door ever be open to you if you never knock? Because that's the gist of the parable, and that's the gist of what he says about keep on asking, seeking, knocking. And our hesitancy is we want to think we're stronger than we really are. I don't need to ask. I don't need to seek. I don't need to knock. I can do it myself. And Jesus says, but if you want to get, if you want to, if you want to know what prayer is about, if you want to get to the end, if you want to get an answer, you've got to ask and seek and knock. Because if we don't care enough to even ask or seek or knock, then what are we doing? And the reason we can do that, the reason we can come in that kind of spirit of humility and transparency and openness is because of who God is. When Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, He speaks to them about what? He speaks to them about how, but really, primarily, what he wants them to understand is who. It's about who. And in verses 11 and 12 and 13, Jesus says, the reason you can keep on seeking and asking and knocking with confidence is because of who your father is. The one to whom you are praying. He says he's good. Every one of us has connections to children in some form. Our own children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbor kid that we are connected to. There there are children in our lives. And I suspect that we are glad to do good things to children. We love to see children happy. We love to see them enjoying life. We love to see them getting good things. And Jesus says, as much as you love good for your children, God wants it infinitely more. And I am convinced that the reason we struggle to pray, the reason we struggle so much about praying is right here. We're not convinced that God is who he says he is. That God is good. That everything God does is good. Even when it doesn't feel like it, God is good. Had Robinson tells of when he was, his children were young, he used to play this game, would come home from work and he'd put some pennies in his hand and he'd close his fist and his kids would gather around and they would do everything they could to pry open his fingers and get out that money. And they would work and work and work and pull and tug and work together because they were small and he had strong hands and finally they'd get his hand open and they'd grab those pennies and they'd run off laughing and, and celebrating that they got those coins. 
He said, sometimes I think we view God that way. That when we come to God in prayer, we think we are, we are, we are prying little tokens from God's hand. And the reality is God's hands are wide open. God's arms are wide open. He loves to do good for his children. He loves to do good for his children because this is the kind of God that he is. And how do we know that? Among all the ways that we know that, perhaps the most visible is this table. Because this table tells us this is the links to which God is willing to go to express his good for us. This is how far God is willing to go to express his heart for us. Even to a cross. And this table takes us back to what God has done in Christ. And it reminds us of all that God has promised to do in Christ. And in many ways, everything we think about prayer is rooted in this table because it declares to us who God really is, the one to whom we're praying. And so this morning, as we come to this table, it's my prayer and my desire that we would come recognizing the goodness of God. That we would pray with open hearts, that we would pray with transparency and vulnerability and, 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 and weakness and honesty and humility. And we can do that confidently because we know who God is. My prayer is that as we come and as we eat and drink, we would gain a new and deeper understanding of our loving Heavenly Father, who is good. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you love us with an unconditional love. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. As we come to this table, we pray your anointing upon the bread and the cup. As we eat and drink, we will know in a new way, a deeper way, the goodness of who you are. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks to the Father in heaven and broke it. And gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven. And gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're receiving... Communion this morning by the mode of intinction it simply means to dip in. And as you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles.
If coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we have trays of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let us know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you would like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with the desire in your heart to know God, to know the goodness of God in your life, and come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
receive the benediction. With the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.